Yeah. Okay. Thank you, thank you. So thank you, Mary, for the introduction. And thank you so much, President Higgins, for inviting us, Ian and I. We began last night and we drank a bit too much whiskey. So we both woke up at three in the morning, I think, from that and decided that we should have gone for a walk. But what I absolutely love um, in terms of being here is the leadership you're providing. We can't just rethink economics. We have to link it. Sorry, I'm holding this glass because I'm not sure where to put it because this is tilting. I'll put it back there. We have to rethink economics in order to rethink the economy. The two things are fundamentally linked. And this morning, you talked about over breakfast this notion of performativity, how we evaluate, how we value is not neutral. It actually changes things in the real economy. And that comes back to how we think, the stories we tell, the narrations. And you said something else really important this morning, even though I value so much the leadership you're providing. And if, if only presidents and prime ministers around the world spoke as you do, that's not enough. We need to actually change the thinking. The civil service has been battered, <laughs> literally battered, to such a point that I often walk into rooms around the world when I speak to civil servants, as I do, and at all different levels, from prime ministers to ministers to all the people working within the ministries. And I walk in as an economist. And I often walk out as a life coach. <laughs> I get hugs <laughs> saying, thank you for making me sort of want to wake up again because the, the power of public choice theory in new public management, the power that this has had on our bureaucracies, that the word bureaucracy is by definition a negative word, when actually we know we need bureaucracies, we just need dynamic and creative bureaucracies. And the power that this mindset has had, which has been absolutely linked to neoliberal economics, but its implications are within the state in the everyday tools and how they're used, it cannot be said just how strong that is. And the notion that at best, at best, you can fix something, fix a market failure, and that you should do so, but be very careful not to crowd out commerce and business. And if you do something positive, it's still kind of negative, right? So crowding in is supposed to be the good thing. Crowding out is a bad thing, but crowding in, does it sound good? It's still crowding. So we literally don't have the narrative, the stories, the vocabulary, the discourse. And I, I open this uh, new book that I wrote, The Value of Everything, with Plato's great quote of, you know, storytellers rule the world. And I've been very interested in the uh, last years to look at different kind of tables and graphs. For example, Thomas Piketty's wonderful graph of the rise, well, wonderful just because there's very great data behind it, but terrible rise of inequality since the 1970s. And you can literally map and trace for every decade, the stories and the narratives that were told in order to lobby for uh, pretty regressive taxations that then he talks about in this empirical way. For example, in the US, the fall in capital gains tax by 50% in a short four-year period was accompanied by a story at the time by the National Venture Capital Association that had literally just formed. And the narrative was, you want the innovation economy, you want knowledge economy, we'll then reduce our capital gains tax. And they achieved it very effectively. And so what I want to talk about is that, I'll actually get to my slides at some point, in, that in order to actually rethink the economy to be more inclusive, to be more sustainable, to be more innovation driven with that innovation actually tackling the greatest challenges of our time. This has to be accompanied 
by new stories, by new narratives, by fundamentally new types of thinking within state structures about where does value come from. And value, in essence, the kind of one takeaway, is absolutely collectively created. Markets themselves are outcomes of how public institutions, private institutions, third sector institutions are governed within, but also how they relate one to another. And it will be impossible to form the kind of important public-private partnerships, this very trendy word, or ecosystems of innovation, if we don't also have new types of ways of thinking of what kind of partnerships do we need? What is the difference between a parasitic, a symbiotic partnership? How can we actually really drive through new types of governance structures in order to get the kind of um, uh, value that we need for sustainable growth. And I basically divided my presentation to four. The first bit is going to be on the great opportunity we have ahead, because there is a new conversation out there, not just in terms of rethinking economics, but literally in terms of global discussions that things are pretty bad and we've got to change. And then I'll go into a bit of depressing stuff, just to make sure we're all on the same wavelength in terms of just how difficult this is going to be. And I'm going to outline five massive problems that we have to solve in order to have any sort of shift. I will then talk about, well, as best as I can, given the time frame, why and how economic theory itself has been part of the problem and why these two things are not uncorrelated, kind of problematic thinking and problematic policies. They feed one and the other. And I'll finish, and I'm going to promise to at least spend some time on this. I'll probably shorten some of the other bits on concrete solutions. And this will really come from some of my own experience and traveling the world and being that kind of life coach, but that was kind of a joke, and actually forming new types of institutions and helping to fundamentally change the way that we are using certain tools. We're using them in very static ways. And what would it look like to transform them in terms of really changing the mindsets, but also changing the tools, whether it's procurement, industrial strategy, the way we think about loans, to really reflect a new type of economy. Because if we don't change that, then it's all just talk and as great as it is to be here with such illuminated people, um, especially, but not only, President Higgins, it's just going to be kind of you know, a dinner table talk. We have to fundamentally ask ourselves, what do we mean by changing the status quo on the ground? And lastly, I, I always you know, think it's important to remind ourselves this great quote by John Maynard Keynes when he said, you know, when you, you know, if you think you're just kind of out there doing stuff, you know, getting the job done, getting Brexit done or anything else done, well, don't be fooled. You are actually a slave of some form of defunct economic theory. And what I think is really important is to elevate that up and to remind ourselves there's different types of ways of thinking about the economy. We have really entered a very static debate about it in this notion that you can at best fix our way towards a green transition is just completely false. It's not going to happen. So anyway, first, the positive bit, which is how great it is. Uh, that there's so much talk and also action in some places about changing the direction of economic growth because, of course, you know that growth has not just a rate but a direction. And so after the financial crisis, you know, there was no lack of growth before the crisis. There was plenty of growth. It was just a very problematic form of growth. So we've had lots of talk, whether it's in the UN, the OECD, I have here some of the EU's kind of talk about this, that we need a different growth, so smart, innovation-driven growth, sustainable growth, 
inclusive growth. And even the boring bits like smart growth, investment-led, innovation-driven growth, this stuff is radical. So in the UK, for example, most of the growth in the last decade has not happened through investment. It continues to happen mainly through consumption, consumption-led growth, and that consumption is fed by private debt so that the ratio of private debt to disposable income is back at record levels, basically to the level it was just before the crisis. And the reason you should be scared is that's what caused the crisis, notwithstanding all the talk about public debt. Anyway, so all these things really require massive change to redirect the economy. And the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals themselves, they haven't been around forever. They're actually quite recent in terms of the era we're living through, and my God, aren't they important? 17 goals, I know that Sabina Higgins is very committed to them, working around the world with global leaders, thinking about how to action them, and there's 169 targets below those 17 goals. So again, great opportunity. If we really wanna tackle them, well, what metrics do we actually have of whether we're getting any closer, or is this, again, just kind of cocktail hour talk? Um, and, you know, there's actually the return after decades of being a blasphemy, things like industrial strategy. So how do we take that opportunity and use something like industrial strategy, not just to feed handouts to particular sectors, make a list of your four or five top sectors, but actually use it to redirect the economy in ways that all sectors contribute and collaborate towards solving fundamental goals related to these sustainable development goals and how they might be interpreted within any uh, particular region. And of course, there's the talk of the Green New Deal, and I'll get to that hopefully uh, towards the end. I've worked, I'm working, um, with uh, Alexandria Ocasio's team in the US, but it's actually quite uh, interesting how it's really actually become kind of a bipartisan uh, terminology. And I often say that the really difficult bit about the Green New Deal is the last word, the deal. It's actually not rocket science what we need in terms of the green bit. There's plenty of science out there that's been really telling us what we need to do to, uh, to create a, a greener type of economic system, but how do we then action that with new types literally new types of contracts, new types of partnerships, new kinds of ways of doing capitalism that's reflected in a real new deal between public, private, and third sector actors. Um, anyway, so that's, that's the positive bit. And the other positive bit is, hey, business is talking about this too. So already a year and a half ago, the head, the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, one of the most successful uh, investment companies, said, uh-oh, we've screwed up. He wrote a letter to 500 CEOs saying, we've got to change, we need to renew our sense of purpose because without that, we're just not gonna build the kind of communities and companies we need for long-term growth. Year and a half ago, has much changed? No, in fact, I'll show you some data. Things have actually gotten worse in many respects in terms of corporate governance. Much more recently, there was a letter in the New York Times written by 180, CEOs um, under the umbrella organization of the Business Roundtable, basically saying the same thing. We need to invest in our workforce better. We need to think about long-run growth. We need to think about stakeholders, all of them, not just shareholders. And it's like, great, amazing, really good talk. And again, how do you turn this into action so that they can actually walk the talk? And my thesis is it's just not gonna happen without rethinking the underlying principles of what is wealth, what is value, why do we actually need to rethink governance and companies? How can we 
turn that into a real redesign of the capitalist system itself. So it's not just about purposeful companies that wake up and decide that shareholder value is a bit tricky, but actually a more purposeful system, a redesign of the capitalist system itself so that the fundamental relationships with, with these actors whose governance structures and relationships form the market itself, what does it mean to really take that for real? And so the depressing bit, which I'm just going to list, is just for us to remember that for all that to change, it's, it's a massive uphill battle. And unless we admit it and admit to ourselves just how difficult things are and how problematic these different actors are in terms of how they're governed, it's just not going to uh, uh, change. So the first one, and I've broken them down into kind of a, a easy little... Um, problems. The first one is called the finance problem. And some people refer to this as financialization. This data here is from Andy Haldane, the chief economist of the Bank of England, um, showing just how much the financial sector itself has basically outpaced the rest of the real economy. Um, so this is financial intermediation growing much more than the rest of the real economy. And as long as that finance was somehow then being reinvested back into the rest of the economy, you could argue that you know things are pretty okay. But actually, the reason it's outpacing the rest of the economy is it's basically been financing itself. So broadly defined, finance, insurance, and real estate, which conveniently, the acronym is FIRE. <laughs> so when Greta Thornburg tells us, you know, climate change is as though the house is on fire, get the hell out, you don't sit there and debate, well, our financial system is also on fire, reinvesting in itself to the point that in the UK, only about 20%, between 15 and 20% of the sector goes into productive parts of the economy and not just into other financial areas. And this is huge. I mean, so 80% of finance goes back into finance. And you know, if this was the only problem, then we could again sit at our cocktail hour and just kind of bash big finance. The problem is that's not the only issue, industry has an issue too. Industry might be sometimes starved of some finance it might need, but it has itself become overly financialized. This is a kind of twin mirror image of financialization, partly in the financial sector, and the other part is an in industry. So the level, for example, of just share buybacks to boost share prices, boosting stock options, boosting, surprise, surprise, executive pay has just escalated exponentially to the point that over $3 trillion worth of funds have been used just to buy back shares in the last 10 years by the Fortune 500 companies. And these are companies in very different sectors from energy, Exxon is one of the biggest share buybackers, IT, Cisco, one of the biggest um, pharmaceuticals, uh, Pfizer, uh, sometimes these companies are spending actually over 100% of their net income on the combination of dividend payouts and share buybacks. So that means they're actually dipping into their capital reserves. And I often talk to these companies. I'm often in the same rooms of some of the biggest uh, share buybackers. And I say, why are you doing that? You know, there's all these you know, things that one could be investing in coming back to those opportunities I mentioned in the beginning. And they will, with a straight face, say, there's no opportunities for investment. And when you're talking to energy companies and, and, and health companies, and imagine there's no opportunity for investment, whether it's in renewable energy or rethinking our healthcare systems, of course, that's not true. And you see that level of kind of siphoning value out of the economy, which I'll come back to later in terms of, I'll call this value extraction, 
um, when you look, for example, globally in different countries, this is US data for a f in terms of the fall in business investment. Because remember that GDP can be broken down in different ways. And you know, everyone is always saying GDP isn't good, we need to include all these other things in it. But even with how it's calculated, it's actually quite useful to look at things like this that people don't talk about, which is that the I part of GDP, remember it's consumption spending plus business investment plus government spending plus net exports, C plus I plus G plus X minus N, the I has been falling globally because of this lack of reinvestment back in the economy. Um, and even that other point I made before, the fact that the UK, for example, is going through consumption-led growth, you can see this stuff even with a not-so-perfect GDP indicator. And yet there's all this talk about what's missing, happiness indicators, well-being, really important conversation, but this stuff should really be on the front pages of, uh, of, of financial newspapers, and it's not. Uh, third, the inequality problem. This is huge. I'm, I'm not going to spend so much time on this, but a lot of what I'm saying actually leads to this. So real wages have not been growing in many countries since the 1980s. Um, and is this because workers have become less productive? Of course not. Uh, bargaining power has fallen. Again, this value extraction itself means that people are not being invested in. Where do skills come from? They don't come from manna from heaven or just from government training programs. Skills and jobs themselves are outcomes, um, endogenous outcomes of business investment. So these two problems are not unrelated. And this, of course, is also related to that earlier point about debt-driven growth, even just to stay put and retain your existing living standards, many workers have had to take out an increasing amount of credit, not because they're irresponsible, but because they have to, given what's happening to real wages. Uh, fourth, the climate problem. Okay, just read that IPCC report. You know, time is ticking. We now have just 10 or 11 years left, if you look at the figures they came out with, in order to stop what will soon become irreversible change. And very interesting that if you look at it just in terms of renewable energy investment, only about 20% of what it should be is being spent on globally. But of course, we're not going to get real green transitions just by changing energy. We have to fundamentally transform how production, distribution, and consumption occur across our capitalist economies. And you know, the problem is massive. And again, luckily, we have people like Greta and actually students, young students. I've got four of them, which I'm not sure what they're doing on Friday afternoons, but apparently they say that they're uh, striking over this problem. I need to monitor them with some remote control to make sure that their demonstrations are not on the high street. Anyway, so the fifth problem, and this is a problem I've been talking about for a long time, is the state. Right? I mean, public policy, my God, what an opportunity to use it to transition from these types of problems. And yet, the framing is just so static. At best, it's there to fix a market failure to the point that you actually have to wait for things to mess up to then step in and put these bandages. And as important as it is to think about the different types of market failures, whether they're coming from positive externalities, so the need for more, uh, say, research and development investment, of course that's very important, or negative externalities, needing things like carbon taxes to fix that problem, the problem is we can't patch our way and fix our way to a fundamentally new type of economy or this very important word that President Higgins used, transformation. Transformational growth requires a, a different type of uh, setup. And you know, this kind of market fixing mentality is then what leads to these words that I mentioned before that are just so terribly boring and why I do think that sometimes I feel like a psychologist. So you know, the notion that you are at best de-risking 
de-risking who? The risk takers, you know? Um, that, that you're simply enabling, facilitating, facile, I'm Italian, meaning easy. You're just trying to make things easier? Of course not. All those challenges I put up in the beginning are huge, difficult challenges we have, and what does it look like to really take on those difficult challenges and, and share the difficulties as opposed to pretending that you're making something easier for someone else, facilitating, redistributing, fixing, administering, um, you know, just all this kind of very passive backseat driver kind of uh, framing. And so what I want to argue, and this is what I'll get to now, is that you know, we're not gonna get change, we're not gonna get transitions, we're not gonna get transformation, we're not gonna be able to redirect growth without actually fundamentally questioning some of the underlying principles about value that underpin a lot of these problems. And sorry for this completely self-promotional slide, but it's all in the book, go buy it. Um, right, so what I try to do in the book is not to say there used to be a great time where value was talked about and weren't they wonderful uh, you know, economists and now we've lost our way. I sort of say that partly at some points, but that's not the point at all. So if, if, if sometimes that's the flavor, that's not the flavor I wanted to give to the book. It's that we need to contest and debate and constantly ask ourselves, what is value? What is the difference, for example, between value creation and value extraction? And what happens when we actually end up rewarding value extraction over value creation? Do we also get value destruction? But even, you know, we can't just use these words without questioning what is value and what basically is quite incredible is how the word itself has left economics departments because there's only one theory of value being taught. So you don't even have to call it a neoclassical theory of value. It's just called micro 101. And so again, what I call for is that we contest some of the underlying assumptions about value that is embodied in neoclassical economics, not to say throw away the whole paradigm, but just bring up that debate again so it becomes much less easy and fluffy to call oneself a value creator, given what I was saying in the beginning, that actually some of the most regressive policies that I've seen in the last kind of 50 years or read about um, have actually been accompanied by narratives of, oh, I'm a wealth creator, I'm a value creator, I need this kind of favor. Um, and, and so what I do in the book, and do not worry, I'm not gonna do this at this hour, especially um, as I only have about 10 minutes left, is kind of go through at least a history of how value is talked about in the history of economic thought, and even just you know, the fact that it has often been related to actually some fundamental changes in the system in the century um, that one is looking at is, is, is interesting, but the big change really is that it went from being talked about as an as um, related to objective conditions of production, whether it was in agriculture or industry, to actually a very subjective way of talking about things. And again, very interesting how President Higgins this morning talked about this kind of ultra-individualization of how we think about society. Well, this is very much rooted, actually, in neoclassical uh, thinking in terms of it's all about individuals making choices, whether it's a company maximizing individual profits, whether it's a consumer maximizing utility, whether it's a worker maximizing individual preferences of leisure versus work. So this increasing individualization of value. Um, what's interesting, however, is if you go back in time, there, you know, there was actually some pretty sophisticated analysis. So the physiocrats in the 1700s, this is basically the first spreadsheet ever, uh, the tableau, the famous tableau economique, they divided 
the classes in the economy into three based on what, where they thought value was being generated. Um, and I've transformed this for you in a nice real spreadsheet. And they you know, divided the, the, uh, the classes in society in terms of the productive class, who they thought were the farmers, because of, again, the agricultural time that they were living through, the proprietor class, who were the merchants, just kind of selling goods and services, and the fundamental class that was really important to their analysis was the sterile class. And the word sterility, of course, was because they thought that if the landlords, who were the sterile class, because they were just moving around existing assets, not really creating anything new, charging money on existing land to the farmers, if the sterile class received too much and siphoned money out of the system, the system would risk not reproducing itself. So the word sterility and, the word and, and this concept of reproduction. Um, and, and they focused a lot on this concept of rent, uh, rent being earned by the sterile class, which again came, was also very important for the classicals in the 1800s who actually thought that value, its generation was in industrial labor, not farm labor, but they too, a very important notion was what was actually happening to profits. Were they being reinvested back into making production more, um, more efficient, more productive, uh, which would lead to higher growth and higher wealth of nations, or was it being siphoned out? And Marx, of course, had a much more sophisticated analysis of this because he, he also brought in the notion of surplus value, but already in Adam Smith, in this very interesting example he gave in The Wealth of Nations of the Pin Factory, the whole point there was that you know, if you don't actually invest in new thinking about how to organize the productive floor in terms of new organizational innovations, not just technological innovations, then the capitalist system wouldn't grow. Um, and so these were 18 different chores that one could have in pin making, and if you increase the division of labor, you can make thousands of pins a day, whereas if one worker had to do everything, you wouldn't. And again, this notion that we, you know, one had to really understand also the relationship between distribution and value creation was important. Uh, David Ricardo, by the way, already in the 1800s, 1821, wrote a very important chapter in his book called On Machinery, where he was asking exactly what people today are asking about the robots. He was saying, are these machines which are coming about, the increase in mechanization, is that going to displace labor? And Marx would say, will it also displace the source of exploitation and hence of profits? But what we then saw for about 200 years was that even though machines were in fact displacing labor, they always have. The robots have always taken jobs. As long as the profits being earned were reinvested back into the economy, then new jobs and new skills appeared. Um, and again, going back to David Ricardo, Adam Smith, and Karl Marx, you really find this very interesting uh, way to look at both value and its relationship to incomes and reproduction of the system. So really, then the question that I ask in the book is what happens when this, again, real kind of fertile debate um, and contestation and different economists kind of fighting it out of where does value come from, what happens when it just disappears? What happens when actually the whole notion that maybe you have some productive activities and unproductive activities disappears? Because all we worry then about are the price system itself and how it reveals value. And what's interesting is that this, um, sorry, I think I missed a couple slides here, that when, um, when the emphasis then becomes all individualized in terms of consumers maximizing utility, work, uh, workers maximizing their choices, leisure work, companies maximizing their profits, of course, this is what allows us to aggregate up and form those beautiful supply and demand curves, uh, which then form these equilibrium prices, which again you referred to, um, and the fact that it's those equilibrium prices which reveal value is actually also linked to how we think about 
income inequality and why it might be rising. In other words, also reduces the tools that we might have to understand the patterns to the point that someone like Lloyd Blankfein, one year after the crisis in 2009, made this extraordinary comment that Goldman Sachs workers were the most productive in the world. Um, and he wasn't saying it to make you laugh like at a dinner party. He was completely serious. This is one year after his own bank had to be bailed out by the taxpayer for the sum of $10 billion, and you didn't hear the taxpayer saying, we're the most productive in the world. Um, and the truth is, of course he's serious, because this, in fact, is how we measure production. If you actually start confusing price with value, all sorts of really weird things happen. Um, of course, a lot of those weird things happen to, for example, how we measure GDP. We know this from the feminist economists who've been arguing this for a very long time. You know, If you marry your babysitter, GDP will go down. So don't do it, in case you were thinking about doing it, because a you know, activity that was being paid for perhaps is now still being done by someone who's caring for kids or the elderly at home, but is not being paid for, so GDP falls. The opposite, of course, with um, the environment. Uh, if we pollute, GDP goes up because you actually have to pay someone to um, clean it up. And so this kind of thing about, you know, why does value theory matter? Is this just a historical exercise saying that you know, the debate has fallen and isn't that terrible and economists should better understand the history of economic thought? No, this actually matters fundamentally to how we understand inequality, GDP, what's counted, the governance of organizations. If you actually look at the roots of shareholder value maximization, which the Business Roundtable is arguing today is a problem, actually has its roots in a particular understanding of value and risk-taking, Read Michael Jensen's work in the 1980s. It's all about shareholders being the residual claimants, so the only ones without a guaranteed rate of return, which, of course, we know is completely false. There's lots of different risk takers who have no guaranteed rate of return, including, of course, the state itself, which has been fundamental for many of the radical technologies that we have in all our smart products today, and each one of those uh, uh, risk-taking uh, uh, technology outcomes was accompanied by all sorts of you know, losses for every internet, lots of uh, concords for every Tesla investment, public many cylindras, I would argue. Um, anyway, the pricing of medicines, uh, if you uh, look at the underlying theory of how we price medicines, which is based on value-based pricing, it actually comes down to this notion that we need to allow prices to go to what the market will bear, having no, um, how do you say, a relationship to actually that much more collective investment, that objective outlook on the production system and health, where you have in many different countries, including in the UK and the US, over 75% of the funding for some of our uh, new molecular entities with priority ratings, so the revolutionary drugs coming from public actors, and yet the price system itself is not reflecting that objective collective value creation process. Uh, digital companies, what do we do with you know Google? Do we just break it up, or do we actually you know formulate new types of governance structures which really explicitly represent the ways that, again, markets are outcomes of how public, private, third sector institutions are organized and relate to one another, and what would it mean, actually, to fundamentally uh, change those interactions. So the city of Barcelona, for example, is thinking about how do we think about public repositories or data trusts as ways of actually capturing and owning and governing the data that's created every time you click on CityMapper in ways that also feed improvements, for example, to public transport as opposed to going directly in companies and we are kind of, you know, uh, obviously 
too little, too late, worrying about taxation and privacy. Um, role of government, this is you know, key, and again, I've written a lot about this. The fact that we, you know, a school pay teacher is not even able to argue what Lloyd Blankfein Fine did, which is, you know, we are the most productive in the world because we don't, we still don't know. It's incredible. We still don't know how to value a well-structured state education system. So we only include in GDP the cost, the salaries of the teachers. So by any me measure of productivity, you would have to have output per input if we don't know how to measure the public goods, the commons, and how could we ever actually measure uh, what the state is doing. And again, the fact that the policy toolkit then is just about fixing um, and facilitating also comes down to also how people are trained. Um, they're not trained to think as ambitiously as, as managers are in business schools, which is all about strategic management, decision sciences, organizational behavior. It's all about just fix that market failure and then get the hell out of the way. Otherwise, you might be crowding out business. So this really requires a complete rethink. So what I've done in the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose, this new department I set up at UCL, was to really start asking how do we create change at that kind of mindset level? Literally crossing out words. Let's stop saying de-risking. If any ministers in the room, ask all your civil servants to stop saying that you're de-risking or enabling. You're not just enabling, you are actually investing, you're taking risks, you're welcoming uncertainty. What does that mean also for the hiring practices? What does it mean for the tools that you need also to evaluate what you're doing? Um, a lot of the outsourcing craze itself has been linked to this. It's not just ideological. The state itself has stopped investing in its own capacity and capabilities. And so it actually inevitably becomes sometimes irrelevant and then needs to be replaced by different actors. Often not. It is often also an ideological issue. But again, if you don't invest in yourself because there's no notion of the state as being an active co-creator of value and just a fixer, then it's not surprising. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy that we don't have those capabilities. So lastly, literally 30 seconds. Oh, I have two minutes. Uh, uh, to my last two minutes, um, what does it mean to actually do this stuff for real? What does it mean to redesign policy, as I was mentioning in the beginning? Redesigning procurement, industrial strategy, innovation policy, these things exist out there, but to redesign them from a different perspective. And really taking at the heart this notion that value is created collectively. We can steer activities that are unproductive into what the classicals call the production boundary. It's not about making a list of crappy sectors and good sectors and you know, just saying, let's help this part of the economy. We can fundamentally transform finance. There was a missed opportunity, for example, after the financial crisis. We could have had a global transaction tax. We just didn't do it. But it's not just about tax. There's also issues of new types of institutions. So there's an opportunity to think about what Keynes talked about in terms of the socialization of investment. This is a bit of the general theory. He didn't develop enough mutuals, cooperatives, but also, say, public banks. So the form of the investment is just important as the uh, quality. And so through this notion of public purpose, which is at the center, again, of the institute I run, and missions, what's really interesting is what would it look like to have a more purposeful system, a more purposeful economy? What does it mean to really take those SDGs seriously in the beginning, transform them into concrete missions as concrete as going to the moon and back again in one generation was, and using them really to transform and energize and make conditional the collaboration between many different sectors in order to tackle challenges as concrete as 100 carbon neutral cities um, in Europe by 2030, or you know, SDG 13, clean oceans, making it very concrete, a plastic-free ocean uh, over a certain amount of time. 
And on the bottom there, in terms of all those arrows, really using the opportunity of the funds, you know, our public, you know, our, our ministries of transport have plenty of procurement budgets. What does it mean to use even that, not just the innovation budget, to really fuel that bottom-up experimentation, but for a public goal? To get to the moon, there was Honeywell, Motorola, General Electric, lots of different companies helped that amazing ambition happen, but it wasn't just to be business friendly or to outsource different bits of what the public sector was doing. It was to fundamentally create an interesting and useful use value uh, public-private partnership directed at social goals. And we've used this recently to help the UK's industrial strategy become more mission-oriented, for example, around a very concrete mission around mobility, where just by putting the word accessible there, it means lots of different bottom-up innovations also from disabled um, community thinking what does it mean to actually change how we evaluate public investments through the Green Book away from a market fixing evaluation to market shaping. We're doing this with the UK Treasury. In Scotland, we helped set up a new public bank, and the first thing we said was do not use this simply as a handout machine, but create the patient long-term finance for those organizations that are willing to engage with the public sector to tackle really important social goals. Um, and also around health innovation, which I spoke about last night at the Crowley Lecture. Um, and lastly, this in the end, the reason I hate the word, or I shouldn't say hate, I don't like the word de-risking is actually this really requires risk-taking. And by talking about it as investor first resort, risk-taking, value creation, co-creation of value, not just fixing of markets, it also means that we have to think about how to share those rewards. And I've been very interested in really rethinking the contracts at the level of the contract and the governance of things like the patent system, conditions on reinvestment. So this hoarding and siphoning of value out comes as part of the contract through which you receive a public fund. If you want to do your own thing and do share buybacks, fine. If you want one penny of a grant, a loan, or procurement budget, there should be conditions attached around these issues of both reinvestment but also towards important areas that are crucial to society. And this is a hopeful agenda, I hope you agree. It's not about just accusing different parts of the economy, but it will only translate into action if we can really redesign the system in ways that uh, tackle the greatest challenges of our time. Sorry, I went over one minute. I hope that's okay. <laughs>